Matthew chapter 5. If you would please grab a Bible and turn with us to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin reading at verse 21. Please give your attention to God's Word. Let's stand if you would for God's Word as Chris reads it for us from Matthew 5 verse 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Friends, the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon that's ever been recorded in history. It's a sermon Jesus preached himself on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It is one of five discourses in Matthew where you see Jesus speaking for an extended period of time, teaching us about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the most well-known sermon, but it's also at the same time the most misunderstood. And it's especially the most misunderstood in places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, because people tend to take the Sermon on the Mount and they tend to do either one of two things with it. Either they will take the Sermon on the Mount and they will read it, this sermon that sets an incredibly high standard for how we ought to live. And they will grit their teeth and they will say, I will do this sermon no matter what it takes. I will not be angry. I'm not angry. And they will fight. Like it all depends on them to obey what God tells them. And maybe, just maybe, God will see their good works and their good obedience, and then He will look down on them and love them because of what they've done. People tend to do that in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Or on the other side, people tend to just flat out ignore this verse. It's irrelevant. This is the 21st century. It's not progressive enough. Listen, it's antiquated, and they'll ignore it. Either people will wear themselves out to obey it, or people will ignore it. It's a very, very misunderstood sermon. But Jesus actually does neither one of those things. Jesus says at the same time, the standard that he desires is high. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5.20 that unless your righteousness is that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's impossibly high. And yet Jesus also expects us to obey, to obey it. So what gives? People in Tulsa, Oklahoma, myself included, tend to miss this sermon because we are susceptible to what is called spiritual pride. We are not like the West Coast, all the progressive ideas. We're not like the East Coast, all the materialism and wealth and aristocracy. We're the Midwest. We hold this country together by our Christian ideas and our moral vision for life. And that is a good thing. It is good to want to lead with morality. That's a beautiful thing and it's very necessary. But if we are not careful, 
what tends for us to happen is that we may, you've seen this in your own life, people who read the Bible very faithfully, people who have quiet times every day, people who go to church very dutifully, you know many people who do that. They're very, very faithful Christians on the outside, and yet on the inside, they are some of the most lonely people you have ever met, aren't they? How is it that somebody who can read the Bible, go to church, practice the disciplines of grace, even know theology very well, yet be so lonely? It's because they oftentimes have used Jesus to keep people away. They've used religion to actually promote themselves through the lens of religion. And friends, that is extremely dangerous, maybe even more dangerous than overt rejection of Christianity. Because we tend to think that it's the gospel, and it's not. And we live 80 years, 90 years of our life, and we have profound regret that all we did was live moral lives, but we never understood the gospel. Christians can be very lonely people. On the other hand, you see people who are very committed to the scriptures, very committed to theology, may even go to church, and they want to get their ducks in a row so much that they're just grumpy people. Like, they're hard to be around. You know these kinds. Yeah, I see the amens on your faces. So if Christians, if people can read the Bible, go to church, practice the disciplines, and yet be extremely lonely and extremely grumpy, how do you explain that? The Sermon on the Mount helps explain it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 to the Pharisees when they came to Jesus and they gave him a very, very complex theological question. It says, the Sadducees came to him and they say, Jesus, there are those who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses says if a man dies having no children and his brother marries the widow and raises up her offspring for his brother. And now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother and so to the second and down and so forth and so on to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. So Jesus, listen, these guys know theology. They're asking Jesus a very complicated theological question. Jesus, in the resurrection of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus says to them, you are wrong. He doesn't say they're misguided. He says they are completely off the map. You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Friends, it is possible to know the scriptures and yet miss the power of God. And that ought to wake you up. Because the Sermon on the Mount is so often misunderstood. And it's possible to understand all the ethical codes of the Sermon on the Mount and yet miss what Jesus is trying to say. So what is he trying to say? In Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, Jesus shows us that there is a dynamic interconnection between relationships and life for Christians. That is, that your relationship with God and your relationship with yourself and your relationship with others cannot be separated. They are like a vegetable medley that you serve your children. Do you ever have children who take their fork with their best ability, try to move those peas out? You've seen it, right? Let's separate the peas from the carrots and the corn. Many of us try to do that. Listen, it's just me and Jesus. That's all I need. Let's just take the people and let's move them over here so I can just focus with just me and my Lord. 
It's very common in places like Tulsa. And yet Jesus says, you got to take the whole medley. It's a package deal. There's no option for just carrots and corn. Jesus says you have, as believers, a radically interconnected set of relationships between God, between yourself, and with others. And so we're going to look at those three things because they all come out in this passage. We're going to look at how the gospel radically changes your relationship. It totally reconstructs your relationship with yourself, with God, and with others. You ready? First, it radically, a follower of Jesus has a radically restructured, totally unique relationship to themselves. Notice what it says in verse 22. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is one of those passages that doesn't leave any one of us unscathed. It's like when you read read Scripture, it's like you lay yourself out on an operating table. And especially in passages like this that help us deal with our anger. You're laid out, and the Holy Spirit is going to take the scalpel to you. That's what God's Word does. The question for you is, will you sit still? Or will you move around and try to crawl off the table and maim yourself? Sit still. Let the knife go in. Because every one of us are susceptible to this. The the word raka is not Greek or Hebrew. It's Aramaic. That's what Jesus spoke. That was his native tongue. And the word raka literally means you are spiritually worthless. Notice that Jesus says, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, it's the word insults. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. The word insults is saying to somebody, you are worthless. It's saying to somebody, you are spiritually, it's like, it's, you know, it's kind of like you're saying to somebody, they talk to you and you're like, whatever. Please. Like, your opinion is not that important, so just keep your mouth shut. You fool is the term moros in Greek. What does that word sound like? Yeah. Moron. That's where they get it. It's what the term means. It means you're an idiot. People who tend, people who tend to feel like they must work their way into some kind of spiritual lather to get God to bless them through their moral efforts, tend to look at other people who are different than them and just go, you're a moron. Now, we're in the Midwest, so we don't say it out loud. (laughs) But we say it in our hearts. The principle is this, that if we have a radically altered, restructured, unique relationship to ourselves, then the principle for us is that love comes from the heart and does not look down its nose at anyone if you're a Christian. Love, your love, on the outside comes from a heart on the inside that does not look down its nose at anyone. And we know that love is patient. Love is courteous. We know that love is putting the person next to you's needs above your own. It is saying to your husband or to your wife, your needs are more important than mine. 
premarital counseling for me is get, trying to get the couple to just admit that I'm marrying this person for their good, not for my selfish fulfillment. I exist to scratch their back, even though they may never scratch mine. Love is courteous. It puts the needs of others above themselves. When my mother was in college, she was part of the very first class of women at Texas A&M University. They had an all men, I heard that whoop, thank you. They had all men for years since 1876. And for the first time in 1963, they let women come to campus. But there are two requirements. You either had to be a professor's daughter or a cadet's wife. And my mother and father were married, and my dad was a cadet. And so my mother would go to class at A&M and get her degree. And when she would walk in the class, every one of the men in that classroom would stand up for her when she walked in. And they would walk over to her, and they would offer their arm, and they would take her to her seat. Wouldn't that be awesome, ladies? And they would walk her to her seat, and they would sit her at the very front row. My mom didn't like the front row, so she liked to move back as the semester went on. But that's courtesy. It's love. One of the things that you have to, you have, we have to get in our hearts as a church is that when you think of people who are murderers, like Jesus is alluding to in the Old Testament, what Jesus is saying is that there is only a quantitative difference, not a qualitative one, between a murderer and a grumpy person. In other words, Aristotle said it like this. He gave the analogy of an acorn. He said, there's an acorn, and inside every acorn is a stem and a leaf and a trunk and a tree and an entire forest all in this acorn. And in the right environment, if you put the acorn on a shelf and you do not fertilize it, you do not put it in the sun, you do not put it in the soil, you do not water it, it will remain an inert acorn. But if you put it in the right context... If you set it in the soil and if you water it and if you add sun to it, then it will grow. And eventually that little acorn, small and as unintimidating as it might be, will grow into a mighty forest. And Aristotle says that is the case, even though he wasn't a Christian. Many, many years before we have revelation given to us, Aristotle says that that is your heart. That if it is in the wrong context... It will fertilize and grow into fierce anger. And Christians are those who recognize that there is only the grace of God difference between you and a murderer. And therefore, Christians don't look down their nose at anybody. In fact, they're the first ones to run to those who are different than them because they don't see that there's that much difference. Non-Christians tend to read the Sermon on the Mount and they tend to say, Anyone who isn't murdered or is angry with his brother, listen, I'm not angry. I've never murdered anybody. I'm a good person. I give to the United Way. Christians tend to read this passage and they tend to say, oh yeah, I'm a murderer. The power of sin still remains in the heart of even those who are Christ's. Though the penalty for sin has been replaced, has been averted onto Jesus, though the guilt of your sin is no longer there, you still have the grip of sin around your heart. And until you're able to recognize that there is only a quantitative difference, an issue of degree between you and the worst person you can imagine, Jeffrey Dahmer, 
Osama bin Laden. Until you recognize that there is such a little difference and that you're fully capable of such evil, you have not yet recognized the gravity of sin. Another way sometimes um, we could describe it is saying that it's like you look down a microscope at microbes. And a scientist looking down a microscope at thousands of microbes are all single-celled organisms. But there may be some microbes that are bigger than others, and that to the microbe, there are some very threatening microbes that are taking over others, that are bossing others around, that are being very mean. Get out of the way, kid. But from a scientist's perspective, looking down the microscope, they're all single-celled microbes. Jesus, God the Father, does not see the difference between people because we are all sinners. He sees us as microbes, sinners in great need of salvation. And for Christians, if we're going to begin to obey this verse, you have to first see that we too, we too are sinners capable of the same heinousness as even a murderer. That's the import of what Jesus is saying. If you're even angry at your heart, why? Because the acorn, Jesus says, is inside. Why do you struggle for control so much over your house, your household? Why do you micromanage? Why do you get so defensive? It's the same reason why ISIS wants to take over the world. It's the acorn in your heart. And understanding the Sermon on the Mount radically restructures and gives you a totally unique attitude toward yourself. But that's not all. Because when you understand the Sermon on the Mount, you understand that it's not just about a radically altered understanding of yourself, but it's a radically altered understanding of God. Because Jesus himself says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Listen, Jesus is saying, this room should be half empty because you can't sit and worship and alter your gift, offer your gift at the altar until you go and reconcile with your brother. Some of you need to put some miles on your tire and go visit some people. But you know how you can do that? You can't do that just by going to reconcile with them out of sheer grit and determination. That's what I said earlier. People just try to obey the Sermon on the Mount and they think that, well, God will reward them. He will bless them. No, no, you cannot begin to live out the sermon until you recognize that it's Jesus himself who did not offer his gift at the altar and then leave it. But Jesus left his life on the altar and he ran to reconcile with you. You see, at the cross, Jesus Christ offered not a gift, he offered his very life for you. Jesus was spat on, he was insulted, he was ridiculed, he was rejected. They called him a moron. They said, Jesus, Raka, you're spiritually worthless. You're like the son of Beelzebub. And yet, what did your Savior do? He ran, he ran to his Father, not to ask forgiveness for himself, but to ask forgiveness for you and for me. Don't you see Jesus in this text? This is what your Savior did for you. This is not 
First, which you must go and do. This is first what Jesus has done for you to give you the power, therefore, to go and reconcile with others. Jesus left the altar of his Father's presence and he took on flesh and became incarnate. It's a big word, like chili con carne at el tequila. I mean, with meat, incarnate. He took on meat, he took on flesh, and he came and he lived a perfect life for us and he died a death because he left his life at the altar so that we could be reconciled. And instead of putting off the blow of forgiveness onto somebody else, he took it so that we can put off God's wrath that is rightly given to us and we can look back and say it was all put on Jesus. Jesus took the wrath of the Father so that you and I might be empowered to therefore go and reconcile with someone else. Do you see the law of love here? Listen, the word anger in this text, the word anger is the word for a slow burn that you dislike something and then you distaste it and then you disdain it. You can hear the slow burn. Dislike it, you distaste it, and you begin to hate it. It's the word that John used in Revelation of Satan toward the woman in Revelation 17 where it says he burned with fury. This isn't just about losing your temper all at once, although it could certainly apply to that. But this is talking about a slow boil, a slow boil. And until you recognize that God's slow boil of wrath for you had been burning for all eternity because he is perfect with holiness. His wrath is just. And yet Jesus paid the price of an eternity of wrath that came upon him at the cross. And this radically restructures your relationship with God. Do you see it? It's not about trying to make God love you by being good. The gospel is about you recognizing that you have an alien righteousness that is not your own, that your sins are forgiven on the cross because of the work of Jesus, and that he gives you his merit. He clothes you with his record. You get Jesus' resume when you go before the Father. And that should empower you because you can know the scriptures but not know the power of God, Matthew 22 says. And not only does that give you a new sense of confidence for yourself, it not only changes your relationship with God, but lastly, yes, it does what the passage calls us to do. It gives you a radically restructured, unique relationship to other people. Because now you're not fearful of others. You know that there is an acorn in your heart there's no quantitative difference between you and somebody who murders people. And because you've been rescued from the penalty of that, it allows you with a new joy and power and an all-new ethic to love the world, to move toward those with whom you need to reconcile. So let me ask you a question. Are there people in your life that have something against you Jesus says here that it's the man who's about to bring another man to court. Are there people in your life who want to bring you to court, the court of justice, a colleague at work, a son or a daughter, a parent, a husband or a wife, a friend? 
Jesus says you will not be able to worship well. You're going to be trying to slide off the table. You're going to get maimed by the scalpel until you run to reconcile with them. Please do so. How do you do it? How are we to go and reconcile with other people? It's painful to reconcile with others. It's very painful. And that's how I help remember how to do it. P-A-I-N. You pray for God to humble you and not harden your heart when you're convicted. And when the Lord lays a name on you that you feel like you cannot worship until you have gone to this brother or this sister and you've asked their forgiveness, you pray for the humility to not let that conviction go. But secondly, to help you, you ask others to pray for you. A, you ask. You have to bring others in because the acorn's in your heart and you will tend not to do it unless you get others at the table to help you. I, you initiate that conversation and you use the wisdom of others to help you with the timing of that conversation. Sometimes you need to wait. Love is patient, yes. Sometimes you do need to wait until the timing is right. You need the counsel of others to know if that's the case. But oftentimes that's not the case. And so in, not tomorrow, not tomorrow, today, you go and you reconcile with them. You pray to be humbled and not hardened. You ask for others to pray for you. You initiate the conversation, not tomorrow, today. Because friends, the only way that we can extend the gospel, the kingdom of God, into the suburbs of Tulsa, into Bartlesville, into Claremore, into Grove, into Tulsa, is for us to recognize that because of the work of Jesus for us, we have a radically interconnected set of relationships with ourselves, with God, and with others. They cannot be separated. And we are therefore to move out into this world with a new ethic of love that says, even if it hurts and even if it's painful, we will go the extra mile to reconcile with them. Now, it may be impossible to reconcile, and we're not to reconcile with everybody who thinks a bad thought about us, or we would be extremely busy. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying somebody who has a slow, burning anger towards you, and you know it, and you can do something about it. Jesus says they're taking you to court. Run to them before you go to the judge. Because the judge will make you pay every last penny. And you can fight to reconcile in relationships. Listen, I know this is hard. Don't move around on the table. Let his scalpel go in. You can reconcile with relationships because it was Jesus who paid every last penny. Jesus was the one who paid your debt of sin to free you up, to give you infinite acceptance in the Father's sight to tell you that he loves you, that he's with you, and that even this very morning, Jesus himself is here saying to you, yes, go do what my word says, but do it because of my love, not to earn it. So, I imagine that there may be some of you who need um, to reconcile with others. Don't let that conviction go. See your Savior who loves you, who said, not Father, forgive me, but he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's pray together.
Lord, we want to be a people, oh Father, we want to be a people who have a new ethic that is a new paradigm for how to love the world. And Father, we need your help to do that. Would you give us the courage to reconcile? Would you give us the courage to know that the acorn is in our heart and that while we are free from the guilt of sin, if we trust in you by faith alone, we are not yet delivered from the grip of sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you will help us to see the boiling anger in our hearts, to see how we look down our nose at other people. Help us with relationships, Lord, if people have something against us, to run to them to reconcile. Because, Jesus, you paid every last penny to empower us to do that. And you free us up in love to go and love and serve the world. Help us, Lord Christ, to be your people for this city. In Jesus' name, amen.